Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today we are continuing our study, Why Did Jonah Run? Unpacking the Book of Jonah. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, good to see you again. We're now on part four of six, going through the Book of Jonah, uh, which... I'm quite excited about. Uh, I hope that everyone's uh, hope you're kind of following where we're going with it so far. And as I said previous times, do leave a comment in the comment box if you have anything that you think of that you want me to kind of go through or give an answer to. I will do my best to see it and get to it. And uh, as same thing again as always, the link to the handout is available in the description. So if you want to, um, if you want to read the notes that I've prepared, they're just a helpful way to kind of remember the the information that we're going through as we look at it. Um, Cool. So a quick recap, just to jog your memory in case you need it. So part one, we saw how Israel was in a really pitiful state. They were um, full of sin, idolatry, unrepentant at the time of Jonah. Part two, we looked at how there is this covenant curse in the Mosaic covenant that um, if Israel are unrepentant, God will send his blessings elsewhere whilst judging his own people. And we looked at some examples of that. Wednesday, part three, we looked at how Israel was the real focus of the book of Jonah. And we kind of did a broad overview of the book and looked at how Israel are um the main, uh, who the book's directed at, and judgment on them. So Jonah ran away because he knew that judgment was coming on his own people. So today is something that I find quite exciting. Uh, you might have seen the title is Jonah and Joel. Now, I don't think this is going to be a particularly long one. I might be wrong, but I don't think it will be. But as I said in part one, Joel is the only written prophet around that Jonah has. Jonah would be very aware. There's a very strong oral tradition in these times, but Jonah would be very aware of uh, Elijah and Elisha and lots of the other prophets, uh, probably Hosea and Amos he'd have some awareness of uh, as they were prophesying at the same time. But Joel is the only one that he can go and read. There are only ones that are written down. So that's really important. So today I want us to focus on it. With that being the case, um, well, does Jonah interact with other prophets, other prophecies, and how does he? Because obviously we know that in the New Testament, uh, there are loads of times where the writers interact with the other prophets. In fact, there's loads of times in the Old Testament prophets where they interact with the other prophets. So Ezekiel refers to Daniel prophesying at the same time as him. Um, Micah quotes Isaiah, for instance, in Micah 4, quotes Isaiah 2. Uh, in the New Testament, obviously, we have tons of examples of them quoting prophets. It's a very common practice to interact with their fellow prophets. So the question is, does Jonah interact with them and how does he? Now, I, I th- well, I don't just think. Jonah does interact with Joel, the only other prophet who he has written down. There are two quotes from the book of Joel in Jonah, two direct quotes. 
One of them is a word-for-word quote. One of them is a uh, quote with a slight modification. But we're going to look at those um, today. So as I say, Jonah interacts with the only written source that he has, the book of Joel. And I've got some things to show on on a screen share in a little bit. But before we do that, we're going to do a very quick overview uh, over what is going on in the book of Joel. Why is Jonah quoting Joel? What's going on in Joel? So we're going to do that. We're going to have a quick look at the book of Joel. So the book of Joel was written around 810-ish. It's a fantastic book. You know, we often know the New Testament quote that I'll pour out my spirit on, uh, you know, all generations. We know these ones, but the book of Joel does not start off like that. There are two very big themes in Joel. They are God's judgment, the fact that God does not take sin lightly and he is going to repay it for it. And God's mercy, that God isn't just an angry judge, but he is a merciful God who, though he is willing to show judgment, delights to show love and compassion. So if you look on the handout, you see that I've split Joel up into three parts, which I think if you read through Joel, you'd find these parts quite, uh, they're quite, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? It's quite uh, self-evident. So Joel chapter one opens with a really strong picture of judgment. It talks about, um, now there's, I'm not going to get into this because I only want to do a brief overview of Joel, but there is some debate over whether or not the locusts it talks about are an army or a real swarm of locusts, but we're not going to bother about that. It just says what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And it goes on like that. Uh, Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. It's a picture of God is sending destruction on top of destruction on top of destruction because they have heaped up sin on top of sin on top of sin. So that's Joel Joel chapter 1 is that there is this long-awaited, kind of saved up, it's all been stored up, the fact that God hasn't, He's gone, you've sinned, but I'm not going to judge you yet. I'm not judging you yet, not judging you yet. Okay, now this is too far. Now it's all coming at once. So there's this long-awaited, saved-up judgment. And it's coming severely to match the severity of the unrepentance of the people. So that's chapter one, is judgment is coming. And it's not just a slap on the wrist. You know, if this is real locusts, and this is basically saying you're not going to be eating and you're going to die from that way. If it's an army, then it's saying you're going to be destroyed by a foreign army. Um, and he, he calls them to repent. So chapter one, put on sackcloth and lament. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So it's this, as I say, chapter one is this really strong picture of judgment. Then there's a big shift. About halfway through chapter two, 
So just before this shift, I'm going to read it. Um, it says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? So it's this kind of, here they are. The battle lines are all drawn. The pieces are in place. Judgment is on your doorstep. But then there's the shift in verse 12. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. You know, don't just uh, rip your clothes and say, we repent, actually mean it in your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So there's this shift where it then goes into, yet even after all you've done to him, the Lord is a merciful God who loves his people and he would delight in forgiving you if you would just repent. Even now, you know, kind of take the image, even now with the armies outside your doorstep, even now with the battle lines drawn, it's still not too late to return to God. He would receive repentance. Um, which in that passage is then heaping more judgment on Israel as we see because it's then saying, you have a God who is that patient, who is that long-suffering, who has that much forbearance, and yet you still will not repent. You know, it's, it's like people saying, I'm a very patient person, but you have managed to wind me up. It's a, kind of a, th that makes them even worse off. So that's uh, part two of Joel. Part three of Joel then changes, and there's this, God will have mercy on his people and save them through the judgment of their enemies. Uh, those who stand against them will be judged while God saves his people, those who are truly his. So that's that's a very quick overview of the book of Joel. And that's very important because I say there are two direct quotes from Joel in Jonah. And as I say, I don't think this will take very long to go through, but let's look at them. So the first direct quote is Jonah. Oh, it's not the first one in chronological order. It's the first one we're going to look at. So Jonah chapter four, verse two. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter four, verse two. And you'll see in verse two, it says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, and listen, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So I'm just going to, um, I've got a screen share here to show. So I hope you can all see this. Um, if we look here at Joel chapter 2, we can see there, Joel 2 says, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Jonah 4 has the same thing. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So 
Uh, someone said to me uh, a few months ago when I was first getting into studying uh, Jonah, they said, but doesn't Jonah 4, uh, verse 2, undermine this, this view that um, disaster is coming on Israel? It doesn't really make sense for this to be a book about judgment on Israel when Jonah's complaint is that God relents from sending calamity. But that misses, if we're going to say that, it misses that Jonah is quoting Joel, which comes in a, a judgment oracle. Um, it wasn't an issue for Joel to be saying this about God in the midst of giving a judgment, because what does it do to the judgment? As I say, it, it intensifies it when they are still not heeding the warning. If they would just turn, then God would forgive them. Um, the other point to make is, it's a common biblical practice. You, you find this in loads of times. Um, I've only noted two down on the handout, but to reference an entire passage of scripture just by quoting the first line. Uh, bear in mind that for us, we have chapters and verses, and so we can get somewhere easily. When the scriptures were written on scrolls, it wasn't like that. They would open the whole scroll and find the bit that they were getting to. So you see this in Luke 4 when Jesus opens the scroll, finds the part in Isaiah. Um, and so what they would do, they didn't have section markers. A it's like if I were to say, oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You would know, it kind of just brings to mind the whole verse. You know the whole thing. So in Matthew 2, for instance, Matthew quotes Hosea 11 verse 1. And he says, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And what he's doing there is he's quoting the whole passage of Hosea 11. He's bringing the whole thing into his context. Otherwise, the prophecy makes no sense. Uh, the other thing, the other time you find it is in Mark 15, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1 which if you read Psalm 22 is very clearly a prophecy about the crucifixion. It says they have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots over my clothing. You know, all these kind of things. Jesus is quoting a prophecy. So it's a very common biblical practice to do this. And so when we read Jonah quoting Joel, he's not just quoting the words from Joel. He's importing the whole context of the book of Joel. So as we read, the context in Joel is Israel have been charged, repent, repent, repent. And yet they are unrepentant and unrepentant and unrepentant. And so Joel says, I, you know, basically, you really need to repent. Even now, even after all your unwillingness to repent, even now it's not too late. And yet you won't. And so judgment comes and is even more intense than before. You know, if you rejected God's first chance, Judgment's going to intensify. If you reject his second chance, judgment's going to intensify. If you reject his third, you know, and so on. So Jonah is importing the context from Joel too, because he is in the same position that Joel was in. He is watching his people carry on in unrepentant idolatry, and he's seeing the first kind of cracks of judgment as the blessings that belong to them are taken to a Gentile city, you know, even a really wicked Gentile city who are known for being vicious, horrible people. 
is taken to them and they repent. So Jonah is seeing the first cracks of judgment on his own people. And so we can read this as though Jonah is saying, I, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, for I know what Joel says, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Um, he's, he's quoting the whole context. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you don't have to read Hebrew to, to see this, but I mean, if you just look here, how this is, a, this is the two lines in Hebrew, they are exactly the same. There's only two differences in that. Joel says, for he is a gracious and merciful God. And that's this is this word here in the um, the fourth word in on Joel is it just says he is. And whereas Jonah says, for you are a God who is. So that's the only difference. But for uh, gracious and merciful, you are. It's the only difference there. It's a direct quote, uh, except changing the, the case to make it because it wouldn't make sense if Jonah said, for I know that he is. You know, it's it's contextual but yeah so Jonah imports Joel's context as well that's really significant because it means that Jonah is now quite making making quite a clear link to judgment in this it's not just a kind of ambiguous ambiguous thing or something that we're reading into the text it really is there he's quoting a judgment oracle so that's the first quote the second quote, I I find a little bit more confusing, or potentially confusing, I suppose I should say. Um, the second quote from Joel is the next verse. So this is Joel 2.13. The very next verse, Joel 2.14, is quoted in Jonah 3. But here's why it's um, here's why it's interesting. It's not Jonah who quotes it. So we're going to look at this a little bit more. So Jonah 2.14 is quoted. So Jonah 2.14 says, Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. And in Jonah it says, Who knows? God may yet relent. And and this is something that's kind of a translation issue. Again, I've got the Hebrew that I can show you in a second. But in the Hebrew, I don't know why they've changed it because it is exactly the same. Um, I think the ESV does an even weirder job of the differences, but they are the exact same sentence in Hebrew, except for the he and God again. Um, but Jonah, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's not just a coincidence. You know, it's the only two times in the Bible where you find this kind of sentence structure. So it's clearly quite intentional. It's either intentional or a massive coincidence. And I, I'm not so convinced of the massive coincidence view. So this is why it's a bit, um, actually, before we get to why it's confusing, uh, this verse in Joel, who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. It's not Joel saying, we don't know what God is like. If we repent, he might turn. It also shows that Joel is not presuming on God's mercy. He's rather trusting in it. He's saying, we don't deserve that God would turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, but we know what God's character is like. So if we repent, he might he might relent of the whole thing, for we know that he is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. So he may well turn. So it's not presuming on God's mercy. It's also not doubting it. It's trusting in it. It's working from God's character. So 
I'm just going to show you quickly. I'll go back to this in a second, but this is the, this is the Hebrew. I mean, you can see again exactly the same sentence. The only difference here is this word at the end of the Jonah passage, which just says Ha Elohim, which just means God. So this one says, for he is, uh, who knows, he may turn and relent. Whereas this one says, who knows, uh, turn and relent, God may. Or, or in English, it'd be the same thing. God may turn and relent. So this is a quote. In, in Hebrew, it looks far more similar than it does in English. Um, it's the exact same letters and vowels in Hebrew. So that's that's a, a you know a really big thing for us to consider. And now this is why it's a bit tricky. Um, why? Because no, I'm just going to read it actually. Jonah three says this: the word reached. No, I'm going to back even further than that. Sorry, Jonah three verse four. Jonah began to go into the city, going on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So that the question is, how did the king of Nineveh because it's not Jonah who quotes this, it's the king who quotes this. How has the king of Nineveh ended up quoting an Israelite prophet? And it, it is a bit of a baffling issue. I have a theory on it. I might be completely wrong, but it's what I'm going to share. Um, one answer, which I used to go with, is, well, God is sovereign and he can put his words into the mouth of anyone. Which is true. He can. You know, Exodus says that he's raised up Pharaoh for this purpose and you know, he can make him say what he needs him to say. But I think there's something a bit, I don't think that's quite what's going on here. Now, as I say, I might be totally wrong. You might listen to this and go, I don't think that sounds right at all. But it, it's it's a theory. I think what's happening here is quite suspicious. Not only does the king of Nineveh quote the book of Joel, but they also do exactly what Joel says to do when they need to repent. So we saw earlier how Joel says, call a fast, gather the assembly, everyone from the greatest to the least should put on sacrifices and fast, which is exactly what the people in Nineveh do. They put on sackcloths from the greatest to the least of them. They hold a fast. And it's quite, well, weird really. If, as I say, it's either just a coincidence or this is my theory. And as I say, I might be wrong. Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, I know this isn't written in there, but when Peter preaches in Acts 2 and says, this is what's happening, the people answer him, what must we do to be saved? I can't help but thinking that that question must have been asked to Jonah. I can't imagine that they just heard this and went, oh, well, let's believe in God. There must have been something of what must we do to be saved. 
And I can't help but thinking that Jonah would tell them what he knows. He knows the book of Joel. You know, as I say, it's his only written source. He would see, well, this is the exact same situation as what the bloke writing 50 years before me wrote. This is what you should do. And so they do what Joel tells them to do. So when you get to Joel 3.9, when the king says it, I don't think it's just coincidence that the king quotes scripture. I think he's quoting what Joel has read, to, uh, what Jonah has read to him. I can't help that. I know that it doesn't say that in the text. I know that it never mentions Joel reading, uh, Jonah reading Joel, but they do exactly what Joel says to do. And the king ends up quoting a prophet he never would have heard of before. So I can't help but thinking that that is how it happened. Might be wrong, but there you go. So that's part four, Jonah and Joel. Uh, I just wanted to kind of give that a look because it shows this link. Joel is this book all about how Israel are refusing to repent when they should, and so God's judging them. Jonah is the same thing, and Jonah is quoting passages from this um, book, from this other prophet who's in the same situation as him. Um, so it has a big implication on the way that we read the book of Jonah. So that's my take on it. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too uh, difficult to think through. Please do grab the handout. And if you can't um, download it, can't work out how to do it, message me and I will email it to you or send it to you however I can get it to you. But um, yes, I hope you've enjoyed that. So thank you very much.